Welcome back to Parkside Greens Bible Study. Pastor Steve here, wearing one final short sleeve shirt before the fall temperatures drop. I hope you've been enjoying our study of 1 Kings as much as I have. There is so much to learn from God's Word. As you think about your life so far, however old you are, I, I don't know if there's a period that you would consider the best of times. Or if you consider American history, I, I don't know if there's a period you would consider the the golden age. There's always right a mix of good and bad in this life, but the proportions can shift over time, right? Sometimes things are going better and sometimes things are going worse. And what we're going to see this week as we study through 1 Kings verse chapters 4 and 5 is that Solomon's reign was in many ways Israel's golden era. And since we're going to be exploring two chapters, we're going to keep things moving pretty quickly, organizing our thoughts around five headings for note-takers. First, we'll look at numerous names in chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. Secondly, we'll see peace and prosperity in chapter 4, verses 20 to 28. Third, we'll see wide-ranging wisdom in chapter 4, verses 29 to 34. Fourthly, a timber treaty in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And lastly, We'll see lots of laborers in chapter 5, verses 13 to 18. So we begin with numerous names in chapter 4, verses 1 to 19. We are told that King Solomon had 11 high officials, and some of them we've met before, right? Benaiah, Zadok, Abiathar, but most of them are new to us. And they each have clear, distinct roles kind of within the cabinet, we're also told that Solomon had 12 regional or district officers who were over the entire country. Each of them would provide food for the king and his household on a kind of an annual rotation, each one responsible for one month out of the year. And in many cases, we're also told the names of the leader's fathers and the cities or the places where they officiated. By my count, there are nearly 100 people and places packed into these 19 verses. Whew! It can all feel a little foreign to us, right? Like reading a list of governors in Russia or burgermeisters in Germany. <laughs> I mean, to us, what's the difference between Ben Hur, Ben Decker, Ben Hesed, and Ben Gaber? <laughs> what are we to do with these numerous names? Well, I think we're meant to see that Solomon was not just wise in doing justice, as with the puzzling case of the two prostitutes last week, Solomon was also wise in administering his kingdom. Right? He surrounded himself with a, a capable cabinet of 11 high officials, and he divided Israel into a dozen districts, each of which was accountable, notice, to, to do their share for the central government back in Jerusalem. Solomon was a wise king with a well-ordered kingdom. As one commentator noted, a few moments in a chaotic home or in a workplace lacking clear lines of authority can quickly create a thirst for order. And Solomon's God-given wisdom extended beyond moral judgments, right, like the two prostitutes, to governmental organization. A wise God provided a wise king to govern his covenant people. And it worked. Man, did it ever work. Under Solomon's government, Israel enjoyed peace and prosperity, which is our second section in verses 20 to 28. Peace 
and prosperity. The population in Judah and Israel had grown to as many as the sand by the sea, and they were enjoying good times. Verse 20 tells us they ate, drank, and were happy. Verse 25 tells us they were living in safety, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. All the people were enjoying a measure of economic independence and prosperity, all the way from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. And the borders were secure all the way around. The economy is booming. As the Lord had promised David in 2 Samuel 7:12, under Solomon's rule, God was granting Israel rest from all their enemies. Solomon had peace on all sides around him, no threats. The people were many and the people were merry. Lots of Israelites loving life. Also consider how the Lord's promises to Abraham a thousand years earlier were now being fulfilled. Right back in Genesis 22:17, the Lord said to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And that has happened now with God's people, as many as the sand by the sea. Also, in Genesis 15, 18, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. And that's happened now. Verse 21 tells us Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates in the north and the east to the land of the Philistines all the way down to the border of Egypt. Verse 25 reinforces the point that Solomon had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates from Tipsa to Gaza and over all the kings that were west of the Euphrates. As one commentator said, through his God-given ability, Solomon managed to rule over all the territory that God had promised to Abraham. Think about that. The land that Moses had desired, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that Joshua had conquered, the land that David had helped subdue, now had reached its zenith under King Solomon. And then verses 22 and 23 show us the scale of Solomon's prosperity. Just a single day's provision for the royal court included over 6,500 liters of flour, over 13,000 liters of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, maybe they were free-range, organic, pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, besides the deer and gazelles and roebucks and birds. And that was just a one-day trip to the commissary for the non-perishables, right? Do it all again tomorrow to feed what some estimate to be four to 5,000 people in the, the government, in the royal court, the bureaucracy there in Jerusalem. Verse 27 sums it up pretty well. Nothing was lacking. Nothing was lacking. It was the golden era. If Cool and the gang had been there, they would have been singing, Celebrate good times, come on. It's a celebration, but on these otherwise sunny days, there was a cloud on the horizon, right? Because verse 26 says that Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. 
Now, some ancient biblical manuscripts put the number at 4,000, which is reinforced by 2 Chronicles 9.25, if you look it up. But whether it was 40,000 or 4,000, we know for sure that Solomon was stockpiling horses, which was a direct violation of God's commandment in Deuteronomy 17.16. That was the law for the king that Israel's king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. But here Solomon is with thousands of horses, right? Swift steeds, it says in verse 28. Solomon apparently had a thing for fast horses. And we will learn at the end of chapter 10 that Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt. The law said the king must not acquire many horses or get them from Egypt, and that's exactly what Solomon did. He would have done well, I think, to heed what his father David had written earlier in Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. As we said last week, there were two sides to Solomon. And though he disobeyed in the matter of acquiring many horses from Egypt, Solomon was the worldwide exemplar of wide-ranging wisdom. And that's our next section, wide-ranging wisdom in verses 29 to 34. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, it says. The breadth of his mind was like the breadth of the sand on the seashore. Right? Solomon was no one-trick pony, a whiz in just one particular subject. No, his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East, all the wisdom of Egypt. Famous men like Ethan the Ezraite, Haman, Chalcol, Darda, and Mahal's sons had nothing on Solomon. Put Solomon on jeopardy, and if he could work the buzzer the right way, he would totally wipe out Ken Jennings and James Holzhauer. Right? Way beyond these men, Solomon was known for his unsurpassed breadth of mind. Literature and music, Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs. He had 1,005 songs. Botany, he spoke of everything from towering trees to small plants without using a smartphone app. <laughs> Zoology, he spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. Solomon was an expert on everything, it seemed which explains why he attracted an international audience. People of all nations and all the kings of the earth came to hear Solomon's wisdom. And that was at a time, remember, when travel wasn't quite as easy as it is today. I mean, Solomon was truly a polymath with the most wide-ranging wisdom in the whole world. And we pause here to remember from verse 29 God was the one who gave Solomon his intellectual curiosity and capacity. His wisdom, his understanding came from God. And Solomon's among his many areas of, of God-given wisdom and interest and expertise, it included building an architecture as well, which is why he worked out a timber treaty with Hiram, the king of Tyre. And we see that timber treaty in chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now, Hiram was already a fan of King David. He had had some dealings with David, supplying David with some wood for David to build his own palace, if you read about it in 2 Samuel 5. 
But David could not build a house for worshiping God because David had been a warrior. As the Lord said to David in 1 Chronicles 22.8 and again in 1 Chronicles 28.3, you shall not build a house to my name because you have shed much blood before me on the earth. Right? But his son Solomon's situation was different. As Solomon says in chapter 5, verse 4, the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. He doesn't have to be the warrior king. There's neither adversary nor misfortune, he says. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. Solomon knew the time was right to fulfill what the Lord had promised to David back in 2 Samuel 7:13. So Solomon needed to get together the raw building materials, which is why he asked Hiram to make a deal in supplying him with cedar and cypress timber that he would need. Solomon, you see, was wise, not just in the arts and sciences and humanities, but also in business. Hiram would harvest the trees from the famous forests of Lebanon, then he'd make them into rafts and float them down along the Mediterranean coast to Solomon, where they could be disassembled and then used for construction. Brilliant plan. And for compensation, Hiram will receive an annual stipend of some 4,000 liters of wheat and, excuse me, 4 million liters of wheat and 4 million liters of beaten oil. It was a great deal, a peaceful deal, kind of trees for food deal, and it was settled by a treaty. In verse 12, we're told that it was in accordance with the wisdom that the Lord gave Solomon. And that brings us to our final section of lots of laborers in verses 13 to 18. A building project of this magnitude required not just parts, but labor, right? Not just raw materials, but manpower and skill to do the building. So King Solomon drafted 30,000 men to serve one month on in Lebanon and then two months off at home in Israel. They'd be on 10,000 at a time on on three-month rotations. And that was just to get the wood together, right? There was another 150,000 people, five times as many in the hill country, to quarry out huge costly stones, which would be cut and dressed, kind of polished and leveled out in order to lay the foundation of the temple. Adoniram, who we met back in chapter 4, he was in charge of the draft of forced labor, which is probably a tough job. And if we jump ahead to 1 Kings 9, verses 20 to 22, we see Solomon did not draft slaves from among the Israelites, but rather only from among the leftover foreigners who had not been killed or driven out of the promised land. As one commentator noted, forced labor does not necessarily entail slavery. And as before, we also see that there are chief officers who oversaw the work, and that would ensure accountability and quality, right? So there was construction wisdom here as well. And that's really what these chapters are all about, God-given wisdom. And I want you to consider all the spheres in which God gave Solomon wisdom. The Lord granted Solomon judicial wisdom to decide, solve a near-impossible case. The Lord granted Solomon administrative wisdom to govern over all the land and the people of Israel, right, using those numerous names, all those officials. 
The Lord granted Solomon incredibly broad intellectual wisdom to understand everything from Proverbs to songs to trees to plants to animals that flew to those that lived on the earth to those that swam in the sea. The Lord granted Solomon business and political wisdom to negotiate a peaceful timber treaty and the Lord granted Solomon construction wisdom to oversee the massive project of building the temple which is going to be our focus for the next few weeks. But before we leave chapters 4 and 5, let's consider some possible applications to our lives. And I'll share three that I thought of. Undoubtedly, you will have more to share in your small groups. Number one, it applied last week and it still applies this week. Like Solomon, ask the Lord for wisdom. James 1.5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. As we've seen with Solomon, the Lord loves to give his people wisdom generously. So let's ask God for wisdom daily. Secondly, this comes from commentator Dale Ralph Davis. Since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his words from the majestic to the mundane. Right? The idea here is seek out God's wisdom as we explore all areas of life. Like Solomon, seek out God's wisdom as we explore and investigate all areas of life. And third and finally, I think we can use Solomon's blessed and peaceful rule of God's people to anticipate the greater blessings and the full peace of Jesus' rule with complete wisdom in the new heavens and the new earth. There, Revelation 7:12 says, we will join with all the hosts of heaven proclaiming blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come before you now thanking you that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift, including wisdom from above. We marvel at the breadth of Solomon's wisdom, and we ask you to grant us the wisdom we need for every sphere of our lives. Help us also to seek out the fingerprints of your wisdom as we explore all areas of your world, your creation. There is a part of us that yearns to have lived under the blessed peace and prosperity that your people enjoyed under Solomon because you showered him with so much wisdom. But there's an even bigger part of us, Lord, that yearns to live forever under the everlasting blessing and glory and wisdom of the new heavens and the new earth. We praise you that your Son, Jesus, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom, has gone to prepare a place for his people, right? a place where we will praise you for the wonder of who you are, the almighty, all-loving, only wise God. All this we pray through Jesus. Amen.